Welcome back to the Psychedelic Timeshare. I'm Mark Coolyard, and joining me today is Ian Benweese, Carol Gilson, Jordan Stanford. We're going to be talking about psychedelic therapies, uh, ketamine clinics, and integration, among other things. Yo, hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Hello. Am I loud enough? It sounds good, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're really lucky tonight to have some friends of ours that are already in this psychedelic culture that's going mainstream, where uh, both Jordan and Carol have been to the MAPS-sponsored phase three clinical trial training that then allowed them to be in a position to be able to administer MDMA to additional patients in that trial with expanded access and use those same training and skills in the conduct of their uh, working in the you know field of being psychedelic therapists. So does that, does that uh, sound about right to you guys? Well, did you say we were uh, we were involved in the trials? The the, the training, the training that would allow you, Maps is engaged in the phase three clinical trials for MDMA, right, and psilocybin, and you guys went through training that allowed you to participate in that expanded access. Oh, correct. Yes, hypothetically, we might have been able to if the training had continued. And I'm not even sure if expanded access is happening right now. So you're saying is it's 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 part of the program, and so for people who don't yet know, uh, the FDA gave psilocybin and MDMA a breakthrough uh, designation, breakthrough status, which means that you have expanded access, so that when you have the phase three trials and the uh, company, you know, you're proving the efficacy of the drug, you can invite people into the study beyond the basic number of people that are in it because they warrant and can deserve this expanded access and you guys would be able to ostensibly participate in doctors who are prescribing those drugs and you guys were right. providing the psychedelic therapy along with. Yeah, that was that was the plan. I think they I think they said a number of 50 people that could do expanded access uh, oh. that could receive the treatment. Oh, so you're saying that there's only I don't we don't know the numbers right in the actual MDMA. study, yeah. right? Those are how how many do you guys have an idea of how many people like are in these phase three clinical trials that part of it before the expanded? Because you're saying that 50 people, uh, not exactly sure, hundreds. It's, it's not it's not too huge numbers, right? Yeah, it's not huge numbers. Definitely over a hundred. Okay, well, what you're saying is then this other 50. Is a much smaller number that some of us might have, <laughs> myself included, thought of of what's possible for it to be expanded out. So, what, wh how how does that? Where does that number come from? Or Good do you question. have any insight? I'm sure. I trust that the FDA is infinitely wise, and that <laughs> that number came probably from another dimension, somewhere where everything can be in this dimension can be perfectly seen, and it's all reasoned out. So, I think it's just the the wisdom of the FDA. <laughs> 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 Which we're slowly, slowly integrating. So, uh, Carol, 
even though you have neither of you have yet gotten to apply that training uh, for the expanded access, you're still uh, working as a psychedelic therapist and have worked at more more than one ketamine clinic and right have participated, supported, whatever the word you like to use, uh, in helping people through hundreds of uh, ketamine experiences already, right? So separate from you getting that training, how, how tell us about what that's like. I'm sure people are really curious what it's like in 2021 to be a, a you know, a psychedelic therapist, or, or correct me if there's better words that I should use. <laughs> um, I have a master's degree in social work, a master's of science in social work, and I'm a licensed therapist. So I do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and I consider the work that I do with patients as facilitation. Um, I'm not a guide or a sitter, and I'm following them in their process and helping facilitate them to have a deeper knowing of themselves. Um, I took a lot of what I learned in the MAPS training to use in the ketamine space. Um, it works really well. And uh, tell, tell us how that works. Tell us maybe what you learned and how that applies. And <laughs> I learned many things. <laughs> um, what, what was help, helpful specifically well, of course, about that training? Of course, set and setting are important and thinking about those things. And then also, how do you prep a person? I feel limited in the prep portion because of the model, the medical model is... Well, let's ask a question for the listeners so everyone can be on the same page. So do, are you the person that's doing the preparatory work to... Yes. Enable somebody. Okay. Yes. To come in. I do a prep session. That and, and are you also then responsible after the session to do any post or follow up support of the person? That's integrated into the session. Okay. Um, so at this point, there isn't structured integration after a ketamine session. Um, Part of that is it takes a lot of time to do a ketamine session. Most people do two in a week when they first start. So that's, you know, six hours typically of being in the clinic and then asking, well, four to six hours in the clinic and then asking them to come back for a 90 minute integration session. Most people can't fit that time. And then cost has been an issue um, are these uh, preparatory costs uh, also potentially covered by insurance if the ketamine treatment itself is we at our clinic do not directly deal with insurance companies got it we do create a super bill which has all the diagnostic codes and treatment codes that can be 
then provided to the patient's insurance company for their reimbursement. Um, right now we're looking into um, upgrading our software system so that it submits all the paperwork for the client. So that's one less thing that they have to do. Um, but no, a lot of it, since ketamine is being used off-label, is not let's, let's explain funded that. Let's explain that for people by insurance. Yeah. <clears throat> what does that mean? Uh, when you say off-label? Um, not as the medication was originally um, researched and prescribed. So ketamine was originally an anesthetic medication. And Is it still used for that? Yes. It's the most commonly used anesthetic drug in emergency rooms, especially for pediatric patients. Awesome. So you were telling us about uh, what, you know, the prep, some of the preparatory work. What's mm. some of the preparatory work that's necessary for a person to come in and ha be set up for a good experience that uh, you're going to be facilitating? Um, the clients come in, patients come in and visit with our medical staff first, and they describe the different sensations a person might have or different experiences that may come up in a ketamine session while they're also doing a medical intake um, just to check overall health, other medications, um, and they typically give them flight instructions. Um, and Why do you guys call it flight instructions? Yeah. Um, and kind of talk about breathing and ways to relax to go into the medicine space, some things to do that day to prepare so that whenever they get to me, I'm looking to see um, if there's anything contraindicated therapeutically, like if someone is experiencing mania, um, it wouldn't be a good time to do ketamine, but we could do a prep session and talk about past experiences, um, things that may come up. A lot of times um, people are new to therapy or have never had this type of novel experience of being in an altered state, um, much less with someone there exploring that space with them. Um, in the MAPS training, I learned, started to learn about internal family systems and that we each have our own, like many parts of self. Some are internalized from our families or society, and then some are just aspects of ourselves. You know, like we have a public persona, we have a private one, and all these are different parts. And if they're not well integrated, then it can be difficult for us to be our full balanced self. And so I, I kind of talk about the framework and language and how to navigate the territory with new language. Um, Sweet. So helping people to understand what an altered uh, state can feel like and to have some of the psychological, emotional tools to understand 
these archetypes and systems of exactly. family relationships so they can put that stuff in a better pattern of organization inside themselves. Mm-hmm. To and so they can recognize things as they're coming up in their journey. Got it. So w- when you say recognize, like r- what would be an example or something, a, a scenario where what you're, you're helping to coach them, where they, what is, what is this thing they might recognize? You know? Well, I mean, every experience is different, but sometimes people have profound experiences of seeing themselves as a younger person and something pivotal happened. Um, a memory that they didn't realize was impacting them as much as it is. And that's actually one of the main reasons why people are hesitant to try ketamine-assisted therapy. Um, A lot of people call our clinic wanting to just do ketamine because they've read studies that it helps with with depression. But actually, it's more beneficial when you have a therapist there to help you understand the images that are coming up and to help you just regulate your emotion because sometimes we can get anxious if we're having a past memory. But I like to explain to people that we've lived through all of our experiences and here we are today. And somehow we're still being impacted by that experience. So couldn't we take ourselves, our full selves that we are now, with all the knowledge that we have about that experience, and revisit that experience so that we can integrate it into our lives differently, see it differently, have compassion for that younger self? So I just kind of lay this out for people in our prep session so this, when you're giving people some of this uh, assistance, you know, in making sense of these things that are that were have been uh, that are occurring, is that real time? Is that after they've had the experience? How is that? How is that flowing? How d- how does that go? Oh, this conversation is before we even get into the ketamine room. Like the very first conversation would be had um, several days maybe even a week before their first session. Um, and they've already spent an hour with the medical staff, and then they spend an hour with me. So they have two hours preparing with the people that will be in the room with them before their first infusion. Got it. I have a question, Carol. Yeah. What is the most common fear that people enter the room with? In terms of fear towards a ketamine session? Um, number one fear is doing something weird. Like that is a quote. I'm air quoting. I'm afraid I'm going to do something weird. Got it. And, and <laughs> no, in the, you in the bar, can't do anything weird, I promise. Me, but it's a bartender, so they don't know me, so it'll be okay. Yeah. Yep. Believe me. They're, it's a judgment-free zone, and most of the time people aren't doing anything weird. I have a question for you, Carol. Yeah. So who is a good candidate for ketamine therapy and who's not a good candidate? Well, it's contraindicated for people who are um, experiencing mania because it can exacerbate mania or induce mania. Um, Someone who is 
Ketamine is really helpful for addiction. There's been studies on alcoholism and ketamine since the 80s. Um, but actively drinking and doing ketamine is a no-no. So it can be a challenge working with our alcoholic patients um, if they haven't abstained from alcohol long enough before their session. Eight to 12 hours at least. 12 preferred, 24 ideal. But who else is a good candidate? Oh, who else is a good candidate? Um, most of the research has been for anxiety and depression. Got it. Um, a lot of research is coming out now of PTSD, chronic pain, and I mostly see people with complex trauma and chronic pain, chronic illness. So I've seen a pattern, and I'm, I would imagine you can comment on this, where people, like you are saying, have gotten this relief <coughs> from uh, depression and anxiety in the short term from ketamine, and it can be quite miraculous. And then the, the flip side, though, is that they might have to come back in a month or, or two to, to get the same kind of treatment again to get that same kind of relief. So I've seen that compared to maybe some of these other natural medicines where people might need to come back more often, where even in some of these natural medicines, they might do them once or a couple times or a certain number of times, and then they don't have to have to come back. Is that a is, is there a pattern there? Um, yes and no. Most people, I think, need multiple ketamine sessions. Um, I think there's how, how several... Far apart, how far apart might those be in a given well, protocol? I don't do a blanket suggestion no, or a blanket. I'm just, trying, um, I'm just trying to get for people who have yeah. no insight. They're totally outside of this, you know, right? They're trying to understand yeah. how these things compare to one another. Yeah. Is this so something I go every month or do I go every couple months or? So I do an individualized treatment plan for each person and they're given an OQ, which is a, an assessment questionnaire that is looking at depression, anxiety, different markers. Um, it's also, it helps with diagnostic. They're given that each time they come in and I develop a treatment plan based on how they're progressing. Um, ideally, I would love people to come in twice a week until their score is subclinical, meaning they're not meeting criteria for anxiety or depression. For most people, that's between six and eight, depending on where they are. But, you know, there are outliers. Sometimes someone's score is amazing after three sessions, and sometimes it's session 10, and then they're dropped. So it's it's really hard to predict. Got it. So. And I think part of that is in traditional plant medicines, there's a longer time spent in the medicine space, and the medicine kind of ebbs and flows. And so you're having multiple experiences within one day. And with ketamine, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. I think it takes longer um, to get there because the experience is shorter. Yeah, tell this is just a, yeah. a theory. I'm yeah, no, this, on. this totally makes sense. So, how, what, what, uh, how long might a ketamine session be that you're uh, working with a with a patient with a client? Um, 
I'm usually with the client for 20 to 30 minutes before the infusion starts, and then the medicine is running for about 45 minutes. Um, and 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 ballpark, what's what's the average dose? And if you could maybe put that into a comparison for someone who might be listening who uh, does ketamine recreationally, because I'm sure we'll have some listeners like that, so they could kind of compare um, and how that might be changed by it being administered uh, intramuscular, however so, it's administered. So what you're saying, Mark, is so they can be, no, 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 dude, this is therapeutic, bro. I, I heard the numbers. <laughs> I'm asking this for all of my friends <laughs> who are my listen. Harm reduction. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and do some, harm reduction. yeah, let's definitely do some harm reduction too yeah. for the average ketamine user. So the gold standard for that therapeutic is half a milligram per kilogram of body weight. And so, so that's where we start. So what what are some of those doses that might be for for people who are doing the math there at home? So what what amounts might you be talking about with someone? Well, I mean, it depends on how much they weigh. Of course. So yeah, just I give us the numbers at the low and give us the numbers at the high. Well, I'm not the one administering the okay. medication. These are the intricacies um, of the <laughs> So I know what my dose usually is but um whenever i'm doing training wait you have to take the medicines before you can give them to other people you don't have to really it's recommended so highly recommended by the maps training is it recommended is this the training you're referring to okay so yeah there is but you don't have to take him as part of the training yes but it's definitely strongly suggested no it can't be required that someone take a medication however it is strongly recommended um i have a firm belief that you cannot take anyone where you have not been and if you are helping someone in a journey you need to have experienced that space amen and you guys chose to do the uh you chose to take those medicines when you were doing the training Correct. Well, we haven't gotten to that phase yet. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. that's the unfortunate thing. It seems to have been paused. Uh, we've done the sort of main educational part, and then after the next part would be experiential, and also there's sort of a mentorship thing that's supposed to happen. But we haven't. Even, yeah, we haven't gotten a timeline or anything. So is this is this timeline then being driven by the FDA? Is it being driven by? Yes. Okay. And I think. Uh, the okay. reaction to Corona, uh, yeah, it's loaded a bunch too. of stuff. So this down. is kind of a COVID problem of Maps is doing this, things are starting to move along, and then COVID. Yeah, things were put on pause, I think, in October, and you Can know, you, is that is that for the entire phase three part of the trial, or is it just for the expanded access that's been put? Uh, the training was kiboshed for it. sure. But the are, are the, the trials, trials still were, going on? Were, I think we're put on pause. For they were paused, but yes, they have been. Continuing. Maps.org has all that information because I'm sure we are not having it spot on, but you can find yeah, that's other people's all job. that on <laughs> maps.org. Everything I say is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> if I had my phone, I would totally be looking it up. <laughs> that's the spirit. So we're hearing that the proper peep, you know, the proper considerations of the types of clients coming in. And then the proper preparation of what they can expect and tools for uh, 
integrating live. And so while you're working with them and they're on the medicine, are you in communication at all uh, with them during the experience? Um, yeah, I'm sitting right there. I'm happy to hold a hand if someone's nervous. And we talk about this ahead of time, unlike traditional talk therapy where you're sitting across the room from your therapist. Like, I'm right next to you. I'm your co-pilot. And sometimes I know when I'm at the dentist or having medical procedures, I want to hold hand. Um, not that this is a medical procedure, but it is in a medical setting. And you're getting an IV, and it can be, you know, really anxiety-provoking the first time. Um, is, is, is the IV the only way that you're participating in, is facilitating on the uh, ketamine treatment? Or Yes, where I am currently working, um, I work at Transcend Multimodality Ketamine in Austin. Um, there's also a location in Pflugerville. We do only IV, and this has been big debate looking a lot of different routes of administration. And the easiest to control and the easiest way to stay in the cycletic phase is through IV because if it gets too high, we can dial it down and you're back into the range of being able to talk and process within a minute or two. And if you're not getting enough medication, same, we can dial it up and you're in the sweet spot within two minutes. So the psycholytic, and you can explain that for listeners, that keeps people in the zone and keeps them from going too far and going into the K-hole. So, right, what, what, what can you explain to our listeners what psycholytic means? It's like looking at me. Yeah. Well, it used to be the term before we had microdosing, right? It was basically ther therapeutic dose where you could be aware of yourself and be in this altered state. Yeah. And be able I to yes. You're more, you're more aware of what's in your unconscious, at least a little bit, but you're still able to think and language, and your, uh, your ego is is functioning, perhaps a little bit less functioning, but there okay so it's almost like being in a lucid dream where you're aware that you're dreaming and you're able to see what's going on um and your defenses are lowered so if you've been afraid to look at something or a re-experiencing a trauma um you're more able to do that because your defenses get lowered in the altered state. So that's also something that hap can happen in the psycholytic realm. So what happens if somebody, uh, you're talking about how you could keep it in kind of this range, if the deeper portions are more, you know, what happens when somebody gets into a K-hole or what happens when people, since it is used as, as an anesthetic and uh, Jordan, you're saying how people can have their ego down-regulated but still have some presence. What happens if you take more of it or they're given more of it and uh, they're, you know, more in a disassociative state? What? 
Maybe you can just explain to people what happens when you take more ketamine. A lot can happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think some people, um, yeah, I think it, it depends on the environment, but um, I think if you're in a chair with an IV in your arm, from, from stories I've heard that it's, um, most people are pretty still, but there are exceptions to that. I'm sure you've seen that, Carol. Yes. Well, yeah. What's happening on these stronger doses? Um, usually the stronger doses, people look very, very relaxed. Um, and the goal is, like, this doesn't happen session one. This would happen session three or four, not before the client was prepped and ready. Um in an ideal world, there have been a few times where people were very sensitive to the medicine and they had a bigger experience than we expected. But typically, um, and, and so I do talk about that a little bit, but ideally it's session three or four where we've had a lot of time to talk about it. People have really got to experience the ketamine space and feel confident there. Um, then we'll give higher doses where... Um, things, you're no longer your current self. Um, there's this sensation for most people, describe it as dissolving or disintegrating, like becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, um, until their narrator is no longer present. We all have an internal narrator. And then everything goes silent for a bit. The magic after this happens is being able to observe your thoughts, emotions, the things that are bubbling to the surface, because those are the things that are underneath everything all the time. So being aware of that can be very, very helpful. And it's hard to get to that place without doing a reset of the default mode network. So, so this this is the ego getting more down-regulated, but enough without being too much where the person's completely knocked out, right, and doesn't have awareness of this. Can you, for the listeners, can you overdose on ketamine? And, uh, yeah, is that is that even possible? Well, in that moment of dissolving, there is no awareness, or there is only awareness of all there is. People experience it both ways, nothingness and everythingness. And people could experience either of those. Um, one session, it could be oneness. The other one, it could <laughs> be nothingness. How, um, do they, how do they know which is which? Is that something you help them with? Um, it's how they describe it. It's usually uh, uh, something that they're feeling going in. But I don't remember your question. <laughs> it was about, uh, it was around dosage. And the, like the, the quote-unquote K-hole dose, That I think that word frightens a lot of people when they hear it. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is your chance. This is your chance to fix all that social programming <laughs> by good, useful, clean, accurate information. Because if I was a ketamine a drug rep, and I was a f drug rep for Pfizer, I would be saying that ketamine can't 
kill people because it doesn't slow heart rate or breathing. Oh, yeah. And so, and so I would safe. also say it's the most useful medicine on the planet for having uh, of different kinds of therapeutic effects across its entire dosage range where you can totally knock someone out and have them disassociated. You can allow someone to have a smaller dose and relax and do more therapeutic stuff. And then you have all the stuff in the middle here. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you can, since it's short acting half-life, you can really dial it up and then bring it back down real quick and die, you can really control mm-hmm. the waves that I, I think most people don't know that because they've heard about ketamine back PCP or they know it might be used in an emergency room, but they're not aware of all the history of ketamine and using all this therapeutic stuff where it's, there, there's so much range, right, that you can uh, work in there. Yeah, the anesthetic dose is a good deal higher than a therapeutic. So is the dose. anesthetic dose the K-hole? No, though people people do experience things like K-hole on their way out of the anesthetic dose. Uh-huh. So what, where is the K-hole? So <laughs> it's, 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 it's before you get to the full anesthetic dose, but after you've gone past the more psycholytic, therapeutic. Yeah, I feel like it's very often forget losing contact with your any normal sense of self it's very easy to forget that you've taken ketamine and that you're just yeah. you know somewhere else got it so you can say you can actually forget that you're that you're that you're on it wow yes and the the experience is the word hole implies this kind of like going down and i think ketamine it's so sort of multiversical that it feels like you can go anywhere, you know, up or down or enfold into another dimension. So um, the <laughs> whole sounds scary, and it certainly it can be, but it it can really be anything. I mean, sometimes it people can be are, blissful and are meeting, fun. Yeah, people are meeting with angels, and I know a guy, he told me about one experience he had where he was existing as a piece of dust on a dirty gym floor um (laughs) apparently he needed some humbling or something i turned into mitochondria once (laughs) um wow well so how does how does this compare just real quick since both of you guys have been to mexico and used some of these other natural plant medicines and we've heard similar you know descriptions of uh unit of consciousness and and being one how 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 is ketamine different and and or similar to some of these other natural plant medicines that uh, we've all gotten to work with in Mexico? That's, yeah, that's a good question. It, it can be difficult to answer because there's, you know, certain preconceptions that um, I and I think a lot of other people are loaded with about, you know, sort of something that's man-made versus plant-based and even that can make it feel different. And then there's how the thing actually is. So um, there's certainly a lot of subjectivity in there. But um, to me, ketamine has felt... Um, it feels slightly alien. Like it doesn't, um, it feels, there's the, uh, the word weird. I hear that word a lot around ketamine and yeah, it, <laughs> it feels, it feels weird to a degree. And there's a, like almost always a calming that happens. And I think with other medicines, with other psychedelic uh, plant and fungal medicines, there's, it's far more of a wild card experience. And ketamine I think is, is far more dependable in terms of calming you down and uh, to varying degrees numbing you and very often with other medicines you're much more likely to not experience numbness or even like a direct calming well that's that's really helpful so it's kind of is is it fair to say it's on this like 
it, it might be like an ultimate disassociative where some of these other natural medicines are like the opposite where they're completely associative or, or unitive consciousness. I've heard people talk about ketamine, you know, where they condense down to this one dot mm. <laughs> and then that dot disappears. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're in your own universe, but it's you're the only one in it. Whereas with some of these uh, natural plant medicines, you, you're the whole universe and <laughs> you're it, in it, <laughs> of it, the whole thing. So. And there are, are experiences on ketamine where there's that unity. Um, well, tell us about it because you've been around, right? Hundreds of people, hundreds, you've supported hundreds of hundreds of experiences of people I've doing this medicine. I've actually recently done 2,000. There you go. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I had one client who had experienced ayahuasca a couple of years before, and that was her only psychedelic experience. Um, and whenever she... Can I, can I quickly can I quickly ask you? So then, what was her reason for uh, doing the ayahuasca real quick, maybe, and then why coming to ketamine? So you can at least frame that for people, right? As you know, what she was trying to do. Um, she was having issues with depression and anxiety, and um, interpersonal relationships were difficult for her. Um, what did the ayahuasca? Do, what did it? What did that experience do for her that she'd been looking for previously? Um, I think it helped her be more connected, um, but she did not have a dissolving experience there. Often people who have complex trauma um, need more medicine or more experiences in order to really experience the medicine and go into the experience. So she didn't go fully into the experience. Um, I would say her protector self was very strong. And, um, but she knew that there was some magic, something that would help her um, if she were to explore psychedelics more. She, she felt very called to do it again and um, wasn't able to travel because of covid and so she came to have ketamine and her first experience was very (laughs) ayahuasca-esque she described it in ways that we often hear ayahuasca with a lot of green and orange and all these wonderful colors with a very feminine energy um and so it was almost like she had had an ayahuasca experience, which was fascinating. Yeah, beautiful. So what? Uh, so so this was because of her mindset of approaching these tools as, you know, healing technologies. Mm-hmm. She's just kind of able to continue on and. And I often coach people to be in their heart space whenever they're going in. What does that mean for people? That, um, uh, to like, she really just said something super woo. What does that mean? To really <laughs> think about the things that you love in life and gratitude. And I know that can be really hard when we're depressed and anxious. Like French fries and hamburgers and going outside. Whatever oh, brings you yeah. joy. <laughs> whatever brings <laughs> you joy. Just really thinking about that, concentrating on it. And people have had euphoric 
almost MDMA-like experiences because they've been able to really build and fill their love cup is what I call it. It's a exercise that Beautiful. I talk about filling your love cup. So you're coaching them to have the mindset of uh, these are, you know, medicines that can help them connect with themselves. Yes. And not really the medicines themselves is what their identity or whatever is really more of the, and then the container, the setting that you're providing, and even though you're saying it has a medical basis or foundation to it, you're wanting to have it be as comfortable as possible so that these people can uh, go on their journey if they need the guidance, interaction, feedback while they're going, you're right there to give them that good uh, and useful mirrorship. Yeah, and we we also invite people to bring something that makes them feel comfortable, you know, like a rock or their favorite blanket. No one's ever hit you with that rock. Huh? They know it's got <laughs> no. Do people get angry on ketamine? Mm, not usually. I mean... If we're doing work around some trauma, sometimes uh, either the event or people involved in the event, there might be anger towards them. But I think this is really important, right? Because you know, with trauma, you're afraid of re-experiencing it and yes. afraid of your reaction to it, how that might affect others. Yes. So, how how can we uh, uh, help people understand, you know, this fear they might have around? What happens if I get angry because of something happened to me, you know, mm -hmm. and I act out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how does that, how does that all work? Well, it's hard to act out on ketamine because <laughs> it does numb your body and make you wonky. Um, it's a little difficult to walk or do anything in a forward motion. So wonky is a clinical term. Yeah. Exactly. But you're, yeah, you're just not motivated to kind of get up and move around. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you might be, wow, I'm really mad or slap your hand on the arm of the recliner, but well, it's not very common for someone to have a bigger reaction than yeah. that. And, yeah. you know, this is where I think it's really important to understand that everything we've experienced, we survived and looking at it can actually be helpful um, what we resist persists and grows in size. So if well, we what's the reason it grows? Because we keep thinking about it. <laughs> we pay attention to it, so it gets more powerful. We pay attention to it, that, collecting and preserving and maintaining that energy. It becomes all of our consciousness sometimes. How does our current medical system, by being focused on diagnosis and all these in disease, reinforce that process? rather than allow it to, you know, more process naturally, right? Because we're so focused on... Shutting it down, not feeling fighting it, it, pushing it away. Identifying it as something limiting it. and then talking about it's limiting <laughs> yeah. versus talking about how we want to feel. And I think being afraid of our diseases, like having a, it's like having this eye towards them, like you're my enemy and I need to attack you. Maybe that's, that, that's that definition of autoimmune disease right there. Right. I right? <laughs> uh, seeing yourself as something else and attacking it rather than saying this is me and I need to love and take care of it. Right. So yeah. I, so and I have an autoimmune disease and I work to befriend it. Well, perfect segue then. Let's. Uh, I think to varying degrees, many people have psychological autoimmune disease. <laughs> well, yeah, anxiety and a lot of self attack. Are, yeah. Or well, inflammation self and self attack. Yeah. Well, so. Uh, 
you 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 have your own story of continuing personal transformation and using all these medicines and like you said you had experiences in mexico getting to work with these and how have uh some of those medicines uh, helped you on your own uh, personal journey um i used opiates for pain for about 15 years and legally and uh yeah i was can, can we be can we be your psychedelic therapist right now i was on so a fentanyl patch what was the pain you were modafinil. taking what was the pain you were taking the meds for what was the psychological pain that you were self-medicating for? Um, I have rheumatoid arthritis. My body hurt. Okay. So you're taking... Uh, so, yeah, please please keep going. Um, you're ta- you said you're so taking... So my tolerance was just really high. Got it. Um, so I was on lots of opiates and modafinil because the opiates would make me sleepy. Um in order to do ayahuasca, I needed to be off opiates. So ayahuasca, I, uh, doing ayahuasca was motivation to get off the opiates? Yeah. I would typically, every couple of years, once I would get to the 75 fentanyl patch, which is as high as you can go without then doing morphine or something else, naltrexone or like high doses, um, I would get off and you know have physiological withdrawal and then start over and you know go back up the ladder so it was pretty normal for me to go to my doctor and be like hey i need to titrate back off to reset and i did ayahuasca and so, so what whoops why why uh, why, I, uh, why ayahuasca because people she yep. called me. Well, I'm just saying because people have heard different people kind of sometimes look at the, you know, the menu buffet of figuring out what they're going to do. And they might have heard of Iboga for addiction or something. How, how did you personally, being uh, on the pain meds, decide that ayahuasca was the, you know, I- ideal technology to help you address that? Ian, really, I just followed my heart. She called me. So that's your divine technology right there. And so I needed. How did to, she call you? I needed to answer the call. Um, I suddenly just started thinking about ayahuasca a lot, and <laughs> did Joe Rogan? Did Joe Rogan it, come visit you? Reading about it <laughs> and looking at it. Um, oh, and I had gone to the Maps 2017 conference and had read Joe Tafour's book, Fellowship of the River. Um, but I was confu- called not to, to be confused with fellowship of the ring. <laughs> I was called to those things, you know, like okay. I don't know how to describe it. Um, and it's been four years since I took an opiate for pain. Like I developed a new relationship with my body, with my pain. It's not that I don't still have pain every day. Um, how did how it's did the different. yeah how did the ayahuasca uh, experience experiences help you get on the other side of ten years of uh, opiate uh, use? You're saying was you'd take it and it would like peak and you'd have to get off and recover and mm-hmm. start again, but mm-hmm. you'd end up on the you just you know. Well, it. I think one it set me on a path of being healthier in general, um, not wanting to drink alcohol. Uh, 
cleaning so, my diet. So all the things we're supposed yoga. to do that society or maybe our parents tell us, somebody tells us, but when ayahuasca told you, you were like, she knows what she's talking about. Every cell in my being <laughs> knew that this was the way. Oh. And my overall inflammation in my body is lower thanks to lifestyle changes. But I also um, know that trauma chronic illness go together and if my brain becomes de-inflamed and is helped then the rest of my body performs better so there's definitely many factors at play I mean there was a psychological there was a spiritual there was a physical change and that that is why I'm passionate about being a psychedelic therapist because I got my life back beautiful so uh and you're continuing on this path right it's it's uh are are there other what's happened on your path with these medicines after the ayahuasca or since then yoga 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 yeah yeah so yoga is good medicine yeah yeah i agree <laughs> so uh what about you, Jordan? Were you just about to preach about yoga? No, I thought you were about to talk. <laughs> you guys trying to pl- plug plug the yoga? The yoga is definitely good stuff. So Plug uh, the yoga? Is that like boofing the yoga? <laughs> uh, see, we knew with Jordan on the show we were going to get around. We knew you guys were connected to big yoga. Uh, exactly. The deep, deep state yoga. So uh, Yeah, I think I'll, I will preach about yoga just a little bit. It is it, To me, it's the physical... Uh, corollary to psychedelics mm-hmm. Ooh. and psychedelics certainly twist your mind into all sorts of shapes and patterns and you can you consciously do that with your body and doing camels like free psychedelics oh yeah and <laughs> our teachers um, at the local yoga, yoga studio are always pointing out how camel pose where you sort of thrust your heart out into the space and lean back how often people see colors after doing it and yeah and i think so you can get high in yoga class once you've done psychedelics and meditation stuff and you know how well even without those i think people people yeah people definitely get high that is what ultimately i believe what people are doing with yoga is getting high and also maybe well, who's activating th- who's your endogenous DMT. Uh, wait, endogenous? Mm-hmm. So we Yoga thought, and breath work activates your endogenous DMT. Wait, you mean DMT. because the lungs produce DMT <laughs> that you can produce DMT without smoking it? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Does Joe Rogan know about this? I was doing this. Um, somebody turned me on to this Wim Hof app and I, I was going hard into it and um, it seriously triggered that you know how when you really rip some DMT and all the auditory frequency changes, yeah, it it triggered it triggered that. It was like, all right, free drugs, thanks, Wim. Mm-hmm. That happens to me in yoga and breathing. So, uh, yeah, Jordan, what what would you like to share about some of your uh, personal work with these medicines on? Uh, yeah, in in your life, how do how do how do these things fit into your life? Well, I I was certainly afraid of drugs for about the first thirty uh, ish 
years of my life. I grew up conservative Christian, and even after coming out of that, I was afraid to change my brain in any way, which I mean, I was playing video games for hours a day. So, I mean, I was definitely changing my brain structure with that, but I was just afraid. I think ultimately like a lot of the, the fears around drugs come down to fears towards oneself and fears towards looking in oneself. And so I became uh, depressed enough that I, it, it helped me see beyond my fear of that. And I'd been reading articles about ayahuasca and it just seemed like it felt like something that just felt so okay to try there was very little stigma around it and um it i was yeah i was set on becoming a sort of regular talk therapist at the time and then i had this experience with ayahuasca and it totally pretty much blew up my my future in terms of of going in that direct in the direction I thought I was going, and it made me, it, it put uh, that and later experiences kind of almost put this ethical sense inside myself that I, if I was going to do work as a therapist, which I'm not a therapist yet, I'm still waiting on my license, but um, I do sort of coaching right now. Um, that if I if I were going to involve myself in that field, I had to involve myself in the the medicine end of things too, because it was something that was so real and powerful for me. My work would be, you know, a fraud if I didn't mm-hmm. bring that in somehow. Mm-hmm. Cal, you wanted to ask Jordan a question. Yeah, I was curious. Do you think you were more drawn to ayahuasca because of your past experience? You know, there's like a long history and spiritualism or some kind of religious aspect. I don't know. That just occurred to me. It could be. Uh, I I think I had some awareness that there was a religious sensibility around some of the use of ayahuasca. So maybe that it felt more comfortable. It was interesting that the first thing that happened when I took ayahuasca was she uh, seemed to... Like she pointed me right towards my religious trauma. Can you even explain for people? And and, we'd all reference that the identifying ayahuasca is she for people who like, what what are they talking about? That's a good question. Well, that is certainly how I experienced it. Uh, I had, I didn't have any idea that I could experience, like take something into my body and then have it, then experience the presence of that. I'd certainly experienced the presence of, of God before, but, um, I think that's, uh, I know Ian, you know, a lot around all this, but, um, I think a lot of people have that experience, but also the sort of language around it with the people who originated uses of ayahuasca also, you know, use terms like grandmother and have a feminine sense of it. That's my take on it. Beautiful. So both of you guys uh, had these experiences with, uh, ayahuasca and, Mexico to help uh, take you past whatever limitations, physical, spiritual, otherwise. Uh, and then is, is that it? You know, is uh, do you kind of just take ayahuasca a couple times and you're done, or how do, how does the, the this uh, medicine path work? For me, it seemed it seemed like I needed quite a lot, so <laughs> I've had. 
uh, I think a little under 20 sessions, which is uh, very little compared to some people. Um, I think it's, it's something you really, you, you learn to listen to like a new kind of language inside of yourself, this sense of like, of being called to, to something like being called inside of yourself. You learn to, to listen to a call or an urge and you, you go with it, even though it might seem like an incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> thing to do. And to me, it's, um, it's not just about healing. It's also, it also can be about, um, <clears throat> making myself better and is better at <clears throat> what I do and just, I think overall more intelligent, I think. Beautiful. So, uh, what, what other medicines, uh, did, have you gotten to work with in your, uh, trips and work to Mexico, uh, for either of you guys that you want to share, talk about, or you can talk about things that, uh, other people are, <laughs> I'm one of the most powerful for me was the, uh, the five MEO DMT experience. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was with, uh, toad venom. Wait, people do venom? Or excretion. No, I'm just kidding. That sounds dangerous. Is venom the good term for it? Oh, I <laughs> exudate. <laughs> Fufotoxin in it. Yeah. This that. Is, I remind everyone, this is, you know, we were, this is really serious. And that's what we're talking about. But this is, you know, the comedy format of just to be able to be serious and still have a, you know, a, a good laugh with it. So. So you were injecting? No, that was the guy injecting mushrooms, <laughs> tea directly into his vein. You weren't. No, I injected wow. bufo directly. Injected bufo. Yeah. Okay, no. but no. you don't boof bufo, right? No, but no I do not. Okay. I, <laughs> but it can be done. Yes, right. it certainly could. Yeah, yeah. No, that this was inhaled, and it the experience, and I've I've had it multiple times, but it so rapidly puts me, helps put me in touch with what is real inside of me that I haven't, that was, that has been lost. It's like this. And some people I think experience, a lot of people experience God and very spiritual things. For me, it always feels so personal. The, the things I, I connect with. And in particular, my first time I had this direct experience of aspects of myself that I I had run away from and that that had run away from me. Hmm. And I just, I, I knew they were there and they seemed so, they seemed at once like really close and really far away. So there was a reason, right? That yourself was protecting you from yourself with those things. What, while being on the medicine allowed you to, instead of running away from move towards and connect with those things, and in a positive way, right? Because that sounds kind of, you've been doing that for a good reason, <laughs> and, right, you're doing this medicine, and it's bringing those to the forefront. How does that work where that's not completely scary, overwhelming, confusing, you know? It's like, uh, it feels like grace in the Christian sense. It's like this, it's just there as this energy that is, helping you make this leap that you couldn't normally make yourself. And 
also the the medicine when you it's vaporized is so rapid it gets past many of the thoughts that you could think to, or you know your little your brain's uh, dissociative tendencies it seems to just get straight to the point and it's that also there is be- an element of fear of like a part of it's there's an element of like feeling like you're being humbled by something else in my experience it's like this force is pressing certain parts of you back holding them back yeah how how is it you can experience this without forcing yourself forcing myself to make your ego let go oh you allow oh. okay well i'm just saying yeah you, you there's you can Allow the embrace of the medicine. Yeah, there's 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 an element of choice involved sometimes, and I think oh, with repeated experience, you learn to flex this little muscle inside yourself somewhere. Maybe it's in your brain. It's like a little thing you can do, and like and you can learn it with meditation too. But it's like you just r- learn how to relax and and drop deeper. When I've heard you describe it as sleep, do that description. Uh, oh yeah, I mean the. It is, it can be like that, the process you go through falling asleep where you're making a choice to just to drop in. Is that what you mean? It so, happens to you. Yeah, it happens to you. So uh, maybe, so how does that contrast with maybe some of the experiences on ketamine where you're the whole thing, but that's in a disassociated state? I don't think ketamine is a disassociated state. I guess I, I'm a, I'm a pro at dissociating. Ever since <laughs> I was a little kid, I mean, I learned various methods to numb myself out, blank myself out. Um, some of them, you know, like using technology or just in my own mind. So to me, ketamine feels, even though it can be numbing, it feels like I'm just I'm shifting channels. Uh, like on a TV somewhere else. I'm shifting over to see and be in, in touch with something else. Um, to me, it feels not quite as real as with uh, tradition, more traditional medicines, but still, you know, it's still real. But I don't know, there's, there's a, I don't want to say fakeness. There's, there's something else there. It's, it's very difficult to language, but it doesn't feel like dissociating to me. Um, though I mean, I've been on ayahuasca and felt like I was dissociating. The dose was so high that I was just—it was like I was just in another dimension, and you know, breathing once every thirty seconds. It was nice, but could could that could that difference be what people would call the spirit of the uh, plant or the substance? Or it very well could be. Yes, there's there's a the ketamine. I mean, I have experienced presence. Uh, some sort of intelligence on ketamine. I've heard other people. I know Lily talked about Earth Coincidence Control Office, and I assume there were some beings working in that office. Uh, did they get Did they uh, get downturned by COVID? Or <laughs> I hope they're still working. Okay. I I do kind of know what you're talking about. There's something kind of synthetic feeling. It's the Matrix. It's Inception. It's uh, some sort of yeah. construct. Simu- yeah, there's sort of a simulation thing. 
So when I hear people like Elon Musk talking about, or other people talking about the universe being a simulation, I'm like, you've just done ketamine and you like believe this, <laughs> yeah. this one slice of out. reality. I often have, like whenever I go into the ketamine space, it's this room, like this structure that happens and I see it being built. And it's, my entry point is almost always the same. But it is very alternate reality vre is, is there a waiting room on the way into the academy space before i forget have, i don't know if you guys have ever had this experience have, uh, but it seems like ketamine can sometimes re-trigger a, a dmt experience or maybe even vice versa what is there some sort of uh synergy there or something kicks something out in that brain any any thoughts on this i've thought a lot about this because i see people experiencing other substances like it will mimic ayahuasca like i said earlier or it'll mimic mdma or mushrooms and i think it could be just sparking a memory because there's some sensation, you know, everything's stored in the body, I believe. And so something has been reawoken to be re-experienced in that moment. What do you think, Jordan? I haven't experienced anything like that. I've experienced greater sensitivity to ketamine after 5-MeO-DMT. That's one of those things, right? With 5-MeO-DMT, it seems to be particularly susceptible to reactivations yeah. by other medicines, uh, cannabis for sure, meditation, <laughs> yoga. But, uh, so we're saying that there's definitely potential kind of reconnections, reactivations between all these medicines, right? And maybe some more than others. Mm-hmm. One, one time I was at this uh, Petite Biscuit concert, and um, I went outside and... Uh, we, me and some random people lit a joint and we smoked it and that somehow triggered a 5-MeO-DMT experience and by the time I walked in there, it wasn't a whole audience full of people. All of those people were me. Petite Biscuit was me or my son and I was his dad and I was proud of him <laughs> and... Um, wow. Did all the people I, look like you? <laughs> no, they all, they all looked different but they were all me. 100% and I just started crying and uh, my girlfriend is like what happened out there <laughs> we are all one man God bless Colorado <laughs> Washington or Oregon, <laughs> Where, Oregon whatever legal state you were in at the time <laughs> so uh, wow this is amazing what maybe then uh, are you guys' aspirations either personally for the future or maybe what do you see uh, psychedelics, this mainstreaming? I'm sure there's things we can talk about there. What, what do you guys see What do you or what do you want to see or where do you want to go yourselves? Well, like everyone, Ian, I want my own retreat center. Ah, let's talk about this. This is the, f- oh, I love With this. a menu. Hold on, okay. So, and it's legal. Yes. So this amazing uh, construct in common consciousness that I've experienced since at least 2015 where everyone has this common vision 
of this psychedelic retreat center where you would have the medicines, you know, free and legal, but with all the assistance, you know, to facilitate them and yoga and flotation tanks and EMDR and acupuncture and equine therapy and massage and light and sound and right, everything you can possibly imagine. So is, is that the future? Is that the future for psychedelics right now? These things are all schedule one, right? Uh, We've got states that have decriminalized all drugs or municipalities that have decriminalized uh, all, if not, if not all, the psychedelics. So what's the, what's the future? Are we going to, yeah, what's it going to Well, it depends like? on who wins the race, I think. I mean, Big Pharma would have it all be medical. Um, but don't they have, they have to patent that stuff really to be able to make it medical well ketamine is out way outside of its patent and so they've patented aspects of ketamine or come up with new formulations of ketamine to patent so your average so person might say how can they do that how can they patent something that already exists how can you patent nature how can you patent mama ayahuasca it's the magic of government Okay. You just pull out one little aspect of it. So you're saying kind of like Adderall is a combination of left and right-handed amphetamines. So amphetamines were already generic. You couldn't get protection on that, but you put them in a certain ratio like one-to-one, and you get a patent on it. Or you put CBD and THC one-to-one, and you get a patent on it. You put mm-hmm. desoketamine, which is just left-handed and right-handed stereoisomers of ketamine together in a special mixture called one-to-one, and guess what? You get a patent for 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's God bless America. So <laughs> what future What future would you guys like to see? Or where do you think it's go- going? And so I, I hear what you're saying, pharmaceutical companies, and now there's newer companies that are doing things like uh, creating psilocybin and, ye- and uh, THC using yeast cultures, right? We'll all be able to brew all these medicines as cultures in our kitchen, maybe if the pharma companies don't, right, get there first. So. Mm-hmm. What future do you see? The future I want to see is people having access to the medicine that would be most helpful for them in a setting that is beautiful and restorative. Do you believe that people should have to go to a clinic or a facility to access these medicines? This I, I straddle I straddle the fence on this one. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> um, the boss may be listening. <laughs> I feel that we have freedom and cognitive freedom, and though that should be allowed, I also feel that these medicines are very effective whenever we hold them with respect and can be very, very helpful whenever there is someone helping us through the experience of facilitation. Um, so Self-exploring and exploring on your own is also valuable. So this is a difficult one. I would love to see uh, an ending to the punishment system. I do yes. not think that pe- people should be punished for anything. 
around their freedom. drugs, unless you're forcing them down someone's throat or something like that. But uh, I don't think we, like if we really create the right future for ourselves, I think it's very difficult to even tell what it would look like because I think it would have to be so far out of uh, the the bounds of the current regulatory system and all the crazy shit we are perpetrating on ourselves right now that, um, yeah, I would love for there to be all sorts of retreat centers and whatnot. And, um, and we also need to realize that people are going to do this on their own, uh, too. It, re- people are already doing it. It's yeah. they're all that is retained by the government is the ability to punish people after the fact for some sale or use. And I think we should ask ourselves what that is truly doing to us and, and for us. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's so, it's so complex to talk about. And especially when you have a gun pointed at you in a sense through, through government or the possibility of losing your job or whatever. So I don't think any of us are being, um, I don't think many people, even like at maps or whatever, are being totally honest about how they want things to be because it's just um, we're in the state of insanity where, you know, you'll get punished for certain things. So. so you're at least saying getting rid of the punishment part of it is key and whether or not it's medicalized or also decrimmed at the same time, we have to take that. We have to end that part of the drug war. Yeah. Well, and, you know, some... Some people would benefit from having medical clearance. You know, a lot of these medications raise heart rate, blood pressure, respiration rate. And it would be nice if people could legally go and just get a health check and be cleared medically to do medicine work. Um, That's valuable. So for wellness. Yeah. Yeah. Wellness and it's also harm reduction if someone is going to explore on their own anyway. Making sure that they're fit to do so I think is important. Yeah. Uh, So making sure that people... And prohibition prohibition really does make, make that impossible most of the time yeah there's not a way to know that what you're getting is what you think it is or as pure as you think it is and that your body can take whichever substance you're wanting there might be something better for you based on what's going on with your body or what's going on with your emotion and there are experts who know so i I don't know. Prohibition needs to go away. Punishment needs to go away. I think we're all we're all unanimous on that part of it, right? So, mm-hmm. do you see a future where these medicines are descheduled? We can have a right to grow them and people can have experiences getting trained using the medicines and then we can share them in our living rooms with each other. I think it it could certainly happen. Mm-hmm. It it looks it looks far away from my sort of. Uh, well, I think it's happening, but, but is it legal for that to happen? Yeah. it would be ideal. What's the reason? I think we should try to 
try to, no matter how, how different it might be from our current circumstances, I think we should try to get, get there to, to that place that you're, you're talking about that, that I was talking about too. Well, how, how's, how are the big companies going to get paid? How's everyone going to get paid? <laughs> I, I think uh, free, if you have a truly free market, it sorts, it'll sort things out. But I mean, yeah. we don't have that. So, so no, so no one needs to get paid is what you're saying. Uh, oh, no, I think people should. No, I'm just saying like to, for the, for the medicines to get in the hands of the people that need them, companies getting paid for that to happen doesn't need to be the, the, the situation. Yeah, I don't think any company should have a monopoly on it, but so if someone is selling yeah. a product, they should get money for it. Well, That's the companies all. are going to say, oh, More well, you, you need us to do all the research, right? Right. But we're saying if you make these things that have been existing since, you know, forever and we have access to them and we can grow them, why do we need to have somebody studying what the ratio of left and right-handed uh, ketamine is to make a new... You know, well, and wouldn't it, it be great if there wasn't prohibition, then there could be lots of ways to share experiences. So then research is happening because people are doing it anyway. So why not collect it in a way that is safe? Got it. I mean, I think research and outcomes are important. I wanted to throw in that I think that the whole uh, the punishment model starts with how we raise our kids. So if we can move towards raising our children non-violently, they're not going to be inclined to put up with an abusive government or uh, government tied to giant corporations. Put up with it or want to work for it. Yeah, it's like when you, um, you know, if you were raised by... Um, parents that were hitting each other constantly a lot of a lot of abuse they're they're gonna repeat those kind of relationships when they're when they're dating and if if we start with raising our kids in a healthy way you'll see you'll see the rest change after that amen Any further questions, Your Honor? <laughs> Permission to treat that, wist, uh, that witness as hostile. No. Uh, well, this has been incredible, guys, and uh, really enlightening for people that one, you know, wonder what it's like in the current and psychedelic future of America. And uh, I hope everything that you guys have been wishing for comes true. Likewise. Thank you.
You said no strings could secure you at the station. 